This is Alan Pratt. I am not Angelina, however, she is here with me today. I will be interviewing her as the host for the day of the podcast Empathetic Witness. And we are going to be talking primarily about Angelina's plans for the podcast in the upcoming season three. That's pretty amazing. So, first of all, congratulations on completing two seasons. <laughs> and and uh, I know that you have uh, big plans for season three. So, where I'd like to start is uh, when you first launched Empathetic Witness, what was your purpose? What was the general idea that you had for a podcast? That's a good question. But first, I'd like to say Happy New Year, Alan, and um, express my appreciation for you interviewing me this morning. Um, as you may know, my listeners may know, I started Empathetic Witness in conjunction with a charitable foundation that I founded, Seventh Generation Indigenous Foundation and Training. And I used the podcast to have a conversation around trauma and addictions to promote the foundation. In my second year, I decided to create a little distance from trauma and alcoholism and drug abuse and talk more about resilience and hope. And in this third season, my intention is to have conversations around our internal resilience for healing. Hmm. And I don't have really um, an idea of who I'm going to interview in this third season, but that will come up as, as the year co goes along. Um, I had some amazing guests on the second season, and I'm hoping that I can interview some of my family in the third season. And well, does that answer your question? Well, I think you've answered all my questions. I think we uh, can that's wrap it, it up we now. That's it. We end the interview now. <laughs> that's, a very, that's a very good overview of, of the areas I was planning to ask you about. But I want to go back to the beginning uh, a little bit more. Okay. Because I'm aware of your, of your foundation, which we'll call GIFT. Yes. And the, the establishment of GIFT was, as I recall, very much uh, in part a reaction against your um, experiences in the, in the healing field, uh, particularly addictions. So that, as you mentioned, that was a focus. And, and you're, I believe that you, um, you came to realize that trauma was the, the great underlying problem with causing most addictions. Can you maybe just expand on, on, on that, that starting point? Yes, you're absolutely right, Alan, because, you know, while I was, you know, the chair of Nietzsche Institute, which is located in Alberta, you know, we had many, many people go through Nietzsche to, to look at their recovery and, and addictions. But we didn't have like numbers of real success. And when I resigned from Nietzsche Institute, the question that I had was how come 
and it's not just Nietzsche, but it's the model that's used in all or most drug rehabilitation centers. And it's focused on the AA 10-step model. Is it 10 or 12-step? I can't remember. 12 steps, I think. Oh, okay. So it's it's those steps in Alcoholic Anonymous programs that first begin with giving up your, your, I guess the problem, like you give it up to a higher being and you say that you are, you're, I guess, Powerless, I think, is the word they use. Yeah, powerless. Yeah. And so, what I, you know, when I started the foundation, I was actually talking to Gabor Mate, who is, who is a physician that's renowned in the area of addictions, and he's also an advisor on the foundation. And Gabor's model is that addictions stem from unresolved trauma. And so that got me thinking, there's something in it to that. And so I, I looked at trauma and unresolved trauma with, with a number of guests that we had on, on the podcast in that first year. So, so trauma, this focus, from the way you've described the 12-step approach, um, the the person going through the training or the recovery has to give up their will because something is more powerful than them. Is that right? Yes. And and as I understand the trauma approach, it is seeking to uncover the causes, the root causes of of addiction, and that's a very very different starting point, is it not? Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, following, following up on Gabor's philosophy on trauma and addictions and adding to that is that we believe as Indigenous people that our ancestors are our strength and we all have within us the strength to, to, um, encounter any challenges. You know, we have a built-in resilience as Indigenous people. I mean, they try to wipe us out with residential mm -hmm. school and everything, and we're still here, and we're still strong. And that's one of the major um, foundations for healing, I believe, is tapping into the ancestral teachings. So as I recall, that's another big... Another big theme in your podcast as it started out was it was the fact that you're dealing with indigenous issues primarily. Yes. But I get a sense that you're moving a bit away from that as your podcast has evolved. Is that, is that fair? That is very fair. Yes. Because um, really what I want to create is a conversation for everybody, not just for indigenous people, because as humans, we have... We all have these challenges, and so it's not something that's just for Indigenous people. <laughs> okay, um, so let's let's just dive into your first season. You've talked about 
what you had on your mind and the fact that you were doing it side by side with the development of a foundation, right? Right. And so what were the maybe the most memorable memorable moments, the most memorable guests you had in season one? I think my first guest in season one, Len Pierre, really created a aha moment for me because we talked about language and how we talk about language with respect to colonization and the words. Um, he was an ex amazing guest because he's a, a lecturer and and teacher, so he was used to conversations like this. And um, so that was a really memorable interview with Len. And Len is also an advisor for the foundation. Wow, very good. So season one, I take it, stayed fairly close to your original vision for the podcast. Is that right? Yes. Um, so moving into season two, um, did you, at that point, make a conscious decision to broaden the focus, or is it something that just happened as you went along? It just happened as we went along because I, what I wanted to talk about was about hope and legacy. And so I chose my guests that were inspirational and working all over the world. Um, transforming people's lives. So that <clears throat> you didn't leave the issues of addictions and trauma behind completely, right? What well, did you? I did. I did. Yes, because most of the conversations that I had in season two did not touch on addictions at all. Well, that's a very interesting shift. It's a complete shift. Yes. Complete shift. Okay. Well, how did you get to that point of making such a fundamental shift? Well, I wanted to broaden up, broaden the conversation, so that it would include include more of the population. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first thing. The second thing is I wanted to have conversations that would inspire and intrigue the ordinary listener because I wanted something for everybody in, in season two. And I think in season three, that's still the, where I'm going. And I found really, you know, um, in season one, I, I read a lot of Gabor's books and I just got overwhelmed with too much trauma information that I wanted to. You were traumatized by trauma. Actually, yes. And you know what? That happens. You know, people that work in the area of trauma will become traumatized. <laughs> and I mean, we have a friend, Rupert Ross, that was a prosecutor, and he worked in, in the court system with Indigenous people who had... How would you explain it, Alan? Well, he, Rupert, just to give a bit of context for this, Rupert was a friend of mine dating back to law school in the 70s. And um, wonderful, wonderful man. Um, he ended up being a crown prosecutor in remote fly-in communities. So these are communities with very limited contact with the outside world. And so they're, they're like little microcosms of societies 
but so many of them are are in the are in the thrall of drugs and and uh, alcohol. So he would go in there to prosecute, you know, offenses, whether whatever they were, all, the whole range of offenses. And he found he found he was he was in a different world in a sense in that um, the um, the rules that he thought applied and the understandings that people have generally about the judicial system were not shared by the people he was he was uh, serving. And so, for example, uh, the translated word for crown prosecutor, you know, in our system, the prosecution, the crown and the defense are, are completely independent of each other. But the, in these communities, they saw the judge and the prosecutor and the defense counsel arrive in the same plane. And so they thought they were all a team. <laughs> but anyway, as, as he came to grips with his challenges as a prosecutor, he realized that there was a lot more going on and that there was a deeper disconnect in the understandings of the people in the communities with with the way the judicial system was supposed to work. And that just led him into explorations of, um, of how uh, the intersection between addictions and, and native uh, culture uh, were complicating his life. And he, he undertook to really try to understand it. So you bet you brought him up. Sorry, I made yeah. a big digression. Yeah, no, I, mean, there. <laughs> I, I think it's really great because, you know, we were talking about trauma and how I got traumatized with reading Gabor Mate's book and reading other books on trauma that brought me to think about Rupert. Rupert wrote a number of books on Indigenous peoples. And I remember the first one he wrote that you recommended I read. I was 30 years ago. I was resistant to reading it and because I thought how can a white man, especially a prosecutor, know anything about Indians with respect to you know how our culture is. But I think it took me months before I I picked up the book and started reading it after I had talked to Rupert a couple times. But in the process of him researching for the books, along with his work as a prosecutor, he became, by the time he retired, he became traumatized to, the, to a real severe level, almost a breakdown. And so I think that's what led me to Rupert was because, indeed, when you're reading about trauma, when you're working with people who are traumatized, when you're researching it, you do get traumatized yourself. You kind of you forget what's normal, right? Well, you don't really forget what's normal, but you, you end up with an overload, like I said. For me, it was an overload. I just, you know, as I was reading some of the books, I just, I didn't like to read all the stories on hopelessness and addictions and how even in the face of addictions, people continued the spiral of to death. Mm. And I just wanted to remove myself from that and create a conversation around hope and that hope was everywhere, but it's a perspective you have to take and you have to, consciously 
look for it because if you just are swimming in trauma, you're, you're just going to get too overwhelmed and maybe not swim out of it. And even secondhand trauma, like you say, the case of our yes. friend Rupert, that's, yes. it wasn't his own trauma that was overwhelming him. It was the, well, his empathy, I think. And, uh, yes, he was very the, the experience of other people. Now, now you're very close to the, um, I know that a person who's been very influential in, in your thinking and your podcast is, is Dr. Victor Frankel. Yes. And, and, uh, what you were just describing, um, you know, his situation, as I understand it, was that he was interned in a concentration camp and survived it. Yeah. And came out with messages of hope. And why don't you talk a little bit about how his, yeah. his writings have affected you? Well, the book that I, that Dr. Frankel wrote, Man's Search for Meaning, really had a, a strong impact on me because on the first day of his arriving to the Holocaust camp, his wife died. She was pregnant at the time. His brother, his mother, and his father. And I read that he had started a book because he was, he was a psychiatrist. He started a book on logotherapy. And that's a type of psychiatric care. And he wanted to, he, he wanted to keep that. And so he wrote a bit of uh, outline of it and put it into his jacket. He sewed it into his jacket lining. And when he got to the concentration camp, the first thing they asked him was to remove all his clothes. And with that, his notes. Mm -hmm. So it was destroyed and he had to recreate the book from his memory. And he was fortunate enough that somebody in the camp, the other uh, prisoners would provide him with tiny pieces of paper that he would write notes on and he was able to recreate the book. But his spirit of survival was so strong. And I thought, how can somebody who experienced what he had come out on the other side wanting to help humanity to such a degree that he saw his suffering as a purpose for living? And that was inspirational for me and it continues to be inspirational for me and how does you know and how does that um that inspiration extend to these the subjects that you started out with trauma addictions indigenous people's particular experiences with those things how does that tie in together the victor frankel story yeah or does it well what what that did actually was create a question for me. So the question I formulated from that was, in Viktor Frankl's purposeful life, can that be an example for Indigenous people? Hmm. Does that answer your well, question? He went, well, he personally encountered 
you know, when you look at the story of indigenous people in North America, you know, there's, we're talking about centuries of, of creeping colonialism and, um, and gradual, a gradual, uh, a gradual process, um, that takes place over, over a long time. But in his case, something, something very, very compressed in time and very extreme, uh, happened to him. But, um, but he was, he was able to come out of it, learn from it and teach about it. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, th I, I think we have to be careful that, I mean, the Holocaust, for sure, it was, you know, four years out of his life. Um, I think it was four years. Um, and Indigenous trauma is continuing today. But I think because Viktor Frankl was a Jewish physician, Mm. When he left the Holocaust, I mean, he left the camps, he continued to be um, persecuted because he was Jewish. Mm -hmm. And in fact, as a doctor, he was ridiculed for his, his um, thesis on, on um, psychiatry. So it continued for him. And I think for indigenous people, you know, we've had, we've had residential schools and it's, you know, the last one closed in the nineties. Um, but all the policies, the Indian act are colonial. Mm -hmm. And so we're still dealing with the colonial system today because of the policies. In fact, a lot of first nations, their governance is based on a colonial document because their governance was developed by Indian Affairs agents. And most of them continue today with that same model. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's hard to get away from the colonial impact on us because it's in our policies. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I answered your question. Well, no, it's well. I mean, I, I'm just I'm trying to probe to see whether we can learn what we can learn from Viktor Frankl in his experience and his teaching that would be relevant to Indigenous people in Canada today. And I think resilience, obviously. Yeah. I mean, the situation is very different, but. Yeah. But I guess that what you're pointing out, I think, in the theme of your podcast is that there are connections between these different experiences. Yeah. Well, in fact, local therapy is a therapy that knows no bounds. And in fact, I'm studying that currently. And at the end of 2024, I should be certified as a local therapist if I continue. But the type of therapy is designed so that people will uncover their purpose in life. And so, you know, that doesn't, that means not just non-Indigenous people or Indigenous people, it's humanity. Local therapy 
is a therapy approach for humanity. And it's in the discovery of one's purpose that they can live a healthy life. So that's the connection. Ah, okay. Humanity. Humanity. Okay. Well, let's turn to the upcoming third season. Yes. Um, now, you've, you've been on an interesting journey starting with Nietzsche, at Nietzsche Institute and developing your, your foundation, going through two seasons now of broadening horizons. Tell us about season three. I'd love to. I mean, I just, I find it so interesting, you know, and this morning when I was writing just a, a review of what I did in season two, I described myself as a Denis Lucene Buddhist woman. So that in itself is intriguing because, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and I forgot to put in there, I'm also indoctrinated as a Catholic. So, yes. <laughs> so it gives me quite an interesting profile. And, and uh, so for the third year, I tap into all of that. So I tap into my Buddhist nature, my Dennis Thusene culture, and um, my strength as a woman. Hmm. And resilience for me means so much because I guess when I look, when I think of resilience, if I was to look at it in a, in a dictionary, I would see Angelina as definition. <laughs> well, I would too. <laughs> I can tell you I would too. Um, so you mentioned something in passing that I think is, is quite important. Um, now, I've lived with you for 31 years, and so I have a pretty good idea of who you are. Um, although I can't say that I know you as well as I'd like to, <laughs> because I don't know that people do get to fully know each other, even after decades together. But you mentioned the Catholicism, and uh, how do you see the relationship between um, between um, colonialism generally and Christian religions and the institutions of Christian religions, and particularly in your case, the Catholic Church? Mm. Well, I don't see a real distinction between that. In yeah. fact, I had a conversation in season two with a Lakota man. Um, and what he said in that conversation is the colonial language is a language of control and power. Yeah. Indigenous languages didn't have that. And so in in the Catholic Church, it was all about control. I mean, their whole mandate on for Indigenous people was to control us and to eliminate our true identity as Indigenous peoples. So I don't know that's... I mean, I was fully indoctrinated by the Catholic Church. Like in, in fact, I still can recite all those prayers by heart. They're totally within me. They're part of my fabric now. But I can see the distinction between that and who I am as an Indigenous person. Hmm. Is, that, is that a theme you might be pursuing in Season 3? Um, in what way? <laughs> well, I'm just thinking, uh, you know, I, you brought up the Catholic. I mean, I understand 
I'd be interested in in uh, having more understand. Well, you describe yourself first of all as a Buddhist, uh, then a Sutra woman. Oh, and by the way, also Catholic. Yes. <laughs> and when I met you, you were very much. I'd say Catholic was higher up in the list of how I would define your your approach to the world. Um, I think you have become less. You have freed yourself from a lot of the Catholic Catholic dogmas over the years. Is is that a fair thing? Oh, that's fair to say. Yeah. I mean, I I find that the the Catholic Church. You know what I. You know, a lot of First Nations still talk about good and evil and sins. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all Catholic. Yeah. And so I, I resent that. And, you're, and, and those minds have been colonized. Yes. Uh, yeah. With those concepts. Yes. Which are, I take it, are alien to traditional way of looking at the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think... So moving forward into season three, I want to look at stories that are transformational. So I want to talk to people that have had challenges and have overcome those challenges in a way that is, that others can learn from. Hmm. Okay. So, We've, we've talked about trauma, we've talked about addictions, we've talked about colonialism, we've talked about, what about wellness as a general topic? Yes, I'm totally into wellness as yeah. well. That's, you know, I've, I've um, had major surgery four years ago that resulted in a stroke while I was having surgery. And so for the last four years through the pandemic, my whole focus has been on healing. And, and now I'm, I'm still on healing, but I'm moving towards another author that's really impacted me in terms of healing is Deepak Chopra. Okay. And so in the third season, I want to delve more into quantum healing and what that means. Quantum healing? Yes. Okay. <laughs> that sounds serious. <laughs> it, it sounds serious, but it's very simple. Okay. Yeah. So. But I know he, that's a name that you, uh, you know, I think you've been a follower of his as long as I've known you. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, Deepak is an interesting guy because he was born in India and trained as a physician in India, but didn't tap into the Eastern philosophy of healing until he was in uh, deeply into a physician as a physician. So. But he has a really interesting way of thinking of things. And so this quantum healing is, in a sense, is what it boils down to is our soul. And that we have an innate ability as humans to heal from within. We're designed to heal. We are designed to continue to heal because the main objective for the human body is to live. 
Okay, so so that'll be added to your mix of ingredients. Yes, for, I may even interview Deepak. Yeah, that would be excellent. That would be excellent. Um, so uh, what? Um, now you've you've let's talk about how many episodes you've recorded. I think season two was a high in terms of the number, right? So far. Uh, Actually, yeah, season one I did quite a bit. I think season one I had 14. Okay. And I think season two I had 18, but I'm not quite sure. I couldn't go into the uh, the podcast uh, statistics this morning because it, for some reason it was down. But nonetheless, I've, I've had quite a few. I wanted actually my focus for season two was to have one a week, and that well, didn't quite materialize. That's pretty ambitious. That was too ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's your ambition for season three? I would like to have one a week. <laughs> one a week, okay. So you're not giving up on that. No, I think it can happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I it's a little work. So what's the what's the process? Um, I mean, when you're Thinking about guests, how do you how do you approach that? Well, the first season I interviewed my friends. Right. You know, one of one of my and your husband, I think. First season, as you mentioned, you you basically interviewed your friends, people you already knew. Season two, uh, you took a different approach, or a different approach happened, <laughs> whether it was planned or not. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Okay, before I get into that, let me just say that the podcast, I have a team and the music, the intro music is actually music from my cousin, who's an indigenous singer. And the logo was created by my brother who did a painting and my granddaughter just um, just touched it up so that it's higher resolution. And my daughter actually, as she was on social media and found some interesting guests, she says, oh, I think you should interview this person or that person. And so she would send the names to me and I would, I would connect with them and um, set up a date and interview them. Sometimes it didn't work out because I find on social media, if you direct message someone, maybe they don't even know they have messages, but often Instagram, they don't pick up the message. And if I contact them through their website, it doesn't always get to them. And in fact, when I interviewed the Lakota First Nations person, He's really well known and travels around the world. And when his producer from his website called me and said, okay, he's ready to do an interview. I was quite surprised because it never happens that quick, (laughs) but she said he read my letter, went to my foundation and listened to the podcast I sent him and was interested in talking sooner than later. And so we we ended up having an interview. Great. So that's so it's a a bit of a family business then. 
It is. Yeah. And I like to give credit to people. And of course you helped me with some of the, um, you know, like a couple interviews you did with me on residential schools. Um, and you help with um, sending off the recordings. Uh, so um, one a week is pretty darn, uh, would be pretty impressive if you could do it. That is it. Are you reaching for something that you can't achieve? Or well, you, is you know, one of the things that Viktor Frankl says in a, in a number of his books that he's written is that don't have the the um, level of achievement too low hmm. and don't have it too high either. But I think 52, like one a week will be challenging. If I can do half of that, I'll be happy. Okay. Yeah. Well, that would be impressive, um, I have to say. So um, I guess all of your fans will be uh, waiting on, with bated breath for uh, for the weekly the weekly post. Um, is there anything that you'd like to say as we wrap up this discussion? Well, as one of my most um, favorite fans, or from my family side anyway, is my nephew Duran. Mm -hmm. Duran listens to all my podcasts. <laughs> and so for to Duran and anybody else that is listening, thank you so much because a lot of work goes into the podcast, you know, um, because once I've got a, a guest lined up, I then do a lot of research. If they've written books, I'll read their books. If they've done other interviews, I'll watch all the interviews and listen to the interviews. So a lot of work goes into it. And um, and also another favorite guest, I mean, favorite um, person that listens to my podcast is Jim, who's a, a family friend that uh, I call him the fish guy. <laughs> so Jim, if you're listening, I want to let you know that I sincerely just appreciate you listening and talking to me about some of the uh, podcasts you're always encouraging and um, I really do treasure those conversations because when I first started the podcast I put it out there and it's a bit risky to start a podcast when there's thousands of podcasts out there but I wanted to create a conversation I wanted to be part of the conversation and when I get feedback from family member that listens to all my podcasts and can't wait for the next one. It really is a privilege mm -hmm. and I, and it makes me so happy, but, um, you know, if you're out there and you're listening, you know, send me a, a note, call me up if you know me and tell me what you liked about it, because that encourages me. And I think as I go along, my interviewing skills become a little bit better. And, you know, there's certain things that I used to do it in the first year, I don't do anymore. And that's using some of the filler words like, um, um. So this is, uh, this has been really great. And 
I want to end by saying that the recording, as always, is done on unceded Algonquin territory. And I like to give a little shout out to them because not only are we living on their land, we work on their land as well, <laughs> Ottawa territory. So um, I'd like to end with that. But before we even end, is there anything else you want to ask or if you exhaust it? Well, I just, I just want to say, um, I think you're on a very, uh, you're undertaking a very um, important and brave exploration of issues. And um, as I say, it's been my privilege to share this life with you for the last 31 years. And I know uh, just how much uh, this means to you. So I want to thank you for your uh, words today. And we'll all look forward to season three. Yes, thank you. It's uh, it's going to be challenging, and I look forward to the challenge. And thank you, Alan. You're like I always say, you're a very good interviewer. I guess that's part of your training as a lawyer. And I didn't feel like I was cross-examined. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the intention at all. But you do well. You've got a good voice, and I would like to say to you, finish that book. And get it out there. <laughs> okay. So I can interview you on okay. it. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right.